Welcome to this Westminster Town Hall Forum. I'm Kate Smith with Minnesota Public Radio, the moderator of today's forum. Our program is being broadcast from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. Our guest today, Betty Rollin, has fought against breast cancer for nearly 20 years using a combination of medicine, humor, and the written word. Rollin is a well-known correspondent for NBC News, as she was when she was first diagnosed with breast cancer in 1975. The next year, her book, First You Cry, was published. Now, nearly two decades later, the book is being re-released, something Betty Rollins says leaves her with mixed feelings. Pleasure that the book is receiving attention again, and despair that in the past 20 years, there has been no cure found for breast cancer. Rollins says now she looks back on her first book as representing only one phase of her experience with cancer. The past 20 years have made her look at it all very differently. Since her first book's publication, another experience with death brought Betty Rowan national attention. Her mother developed cancer that was so painful, she asked for help to commit suicide. Rowan agreed, and despite the risk of arrest and prosecution, wrote a book about the experience. Betty Rowan helped make cancer something people could talk about. She convinced many women breast cancer wasn't something to be survived in a solitary hell. Rollin has said the nicest compliment she ever received was when someone said she was the first person to make cancer funny. That, she says, is what keeps you sane. Please welcome Betty Rollin. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a treat to be in Minneapolis, and it's positively awesome standing in a pulpit. Um, I'm not used to resting my notes on a major Bible. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, to tell you the truth, how my Jewish mother would have felt about my being here, but my Presbyterian mother-in-law would have been tickled. Um, I'm actually just kidding about my mother. She would have been honored uh, that I was invited to, to speak here, as, as am I. Uh, as you know, I'm going to talk to you today about my mother, who was, who was actually the world's most cheerful person. Um, I'm sure you know the type. My mother's glass was half full, the kind of person who's glad it's ra it rains because it's good for the flowers. Um, and when her only daughter got cancer, she was sad at first, of course, but wound up thinking, well, just isn't it great that you didn't die, which I had to agree with her there. Um, and when at the age of 74, she got ovarian cancer, she fought the good fight. She endured the most punishing chemotherapy, and during the year that chemotherapy bought her, lived to the hilt. Uh, she even had a bow. And, as you can imagine, the people who made the television movie of Last Wish were really very pleased about that they could work that into the plot. They kind of made more of it than was really true, but you know, that's, that's show business. When the cancer recurred, of course she was sad. Still, she took it in, in stride. And then it became clear that the disease had gained a foothold and that Death was near, though in her view, not near enough. Uh, one late afternoon, I'll never forget, she told me what she wanted to do about that. She lay in bed. Um, she had a little pink nylon cap covering the few strands of hair she had left. And she said to me the following, I've had a wonderful life, she said in a kind of half whisper, but now it's over, or it should be. I'm not afraid to die, but I am afraid of this illness, what it's doing to me. There's never any relief from it now. Nothing but nausea and this pain. There's no treatment anymore. So what happens to me now? I know, I know what happens. I'll die slowly. I don't want that. Who does it benefit if I die slowly? If it benefited my children, I'd be willing, but it's not going to do you any good. It's not going to do Ed, that's my husband, any good. There's no point in a slow death, none. I've never liked doing things with no point. I've got to end this. Um, 
Many sick people talk this way. Some of them don't mean it, some of them mean it. I knew my mother meant it because she talked this way continuously over the next few weeks, even on days that she didn't feel so bad. She insisted on dying, and she could not understand why her doctor couldn't help her. My God, she used to say, they put animals out of their misery. Why can't they help me? Um, I love my mother, so I didn't want her to die. But because I loved her, I helped her to die. As you know, as you may know, we didn't hand her a gun. We knew what the law was, and we were trying really hard not to break it. We did research. Um, we found out, my husband and I, what it would take to die safely. We got her doctor, or she got her doctor, to write out a prescription. I know the word safely sounds strange to some people, but our main fear was that she would take pills that would make her sick and cause her more pain and suffering. Um, this is the fate of many people, and I know that because I hear from some of them. One problem they have, and a problem my mother was having, is that when you're that sick, you can't digest anything. I mean, she couldn't, there was a time during this period that she couldn't keep anything down, not even sips of water. So we had this crazy problem. How was she going, how, how do you die if you can't swallow? Um, I mean, she wasn't going to, uh, you know, we don't live in Texas, we didn't have a gun, and uh, we weren't the type anyway, and forgive me, Texas, and, um, you know, she wasn't going, she was too weak to get out of bed, and she didn't, anyway, she didn't, the idea of a violent death was abhorrent to us all, so it had to be pills, and it turned out that um, that was the answer. Unlike other people, these unfortunate people I hear from, my mother eased out of life as we hoped she would, and more important, most important, as she hoped she would, um, gracefully, gratefully, um, easily, and with no pain. She said, I'm grateful, she said to my husband and me during the last moments of her life, I've had everything in life that is important to me. I've given love and received it. I've cried over my mother's death more than once, of course, and I cried when I saw the movie, even in, even in the happy parts. But when I cry, it's because I miss her, and many of you know how that is. You never, death is a kind of normal, natural thing, but when you love someone deeply, you never really get over it. And for the rest of your life, at, at unexpected moments, it catches you in the throat. But as much as I miss my mother, and moved as I am by the memory of her death, it isn't a painful memory. Quite the contrary. And that's because watching her die was like watching you love someone you love go over a, a prison wall. Life for her had become a trap, and she used that word often. And she was so grateful to escape, and we were so grateful that she made it. Uh, this story has gotten around. Last Wish was, my book about it, uh, was published in 85, and it was, it, it was a, to my utter astonishment, it was a bestseller, and it came out in paperback the following year, and it's been published in 15 foreign countries and in a lot of languages, including Serbo-Croatian and Japanese. And it was a television movie, a very good one, I think. And I've also written about my mother, and other people have written about her, too. So as a result of all this, I've heard from a lot of people. You know, when you write a personal book, it's kind of like a letter. And you that's one of the wonderful parts of that, about it, actually. And I had the same experience with my book about breast cancer, First You Cry. You, you write this long personal letter, and you get letters back. And, um, particularly from women, I might add, who are, seem more comfortable about 
spilling. Um, to say the mail from Last Wish has been interesting is, is an extreme understatement. Um, I brought a, a small fraction of it with me today, and I'd like to share it with you. In general, the response as far as the pro and con part of this issue goes, this, the issue being assisted suicide, I would say 99% of it was sympathetic. And the response to the movie was, was the same as the response to the book, which is surprising, was surprising to me and probably surprises you. Um, that may be in part, as far as the movie, the television movie goes, uh, because when people write letters, I found out, they write to their local stations, and so the network doesn't necessarily know about all the angry mail, and I, I would imagine there was some, but anyway, I never saw it. And um, I like to think that another reason, possibly, that there wasn't so much, that the response was positive, is that um, when people watched the story, as, and the same was the case when they read the story, it, it forced a kind of understanding. Uh, I think they move, it, it moves people when you write a story from the theoretical to the particular, to the human. And I think that they felt empathy for my mother and for her wish to end her life. Uh, there have been different kinds of positive responses. They're from people, some of them, most of them, well, half of them, are from people who are desperate to die themselves. And I'd like to read you a, a typical example of that. Um, and I brought the actual letters with me. And they continue to come in, and it's, it's actually eight years since this book was first published. I'm suffering from an incurable, debilitating, and extremely painful disease. I grow worse daily. I am not suicidal nor depressed. I am in sound mind and have made the only logical choice, euthanasia. Please, I implore you to tell me what I need and how to get what I need in order to exit this world with a painless dignity. Another. I am one of the many who are dying an inch at a time. I strongly agree with your mother that I too want to die with dignity rather than rotting like last week's garbage. My family can't understand what it is to hurt every day for three years. Many letters are from people who went through a terrible experience with someone they loved there's a lot of guilt in these letters. Um, sometimes it's years after the death. One 40-year-old woman wrote, you see, my mom died of multiple my myeloma, cancer of the bone marrow, nearly 23 years ago. She was 49. I was 17 at the time. Days before she lapsed into a coma, she motioned to her pills and asked me to help her die. Seeing my mom, now weigh, weighing about 80 pounds and in terrible pain, it was the worst moment of my life. I almost did it, but I was too scared. A young man who, whose lover was dying of AIDS wrote, Last night he asked me to help him die, and I will, of course, somehow, but how? I cannot find the strength to let go. Um, these two letters, these last two letters, are the sort that made me realize, as I hadn't before, that what I did with my mother helping my mother to die is not something family members should be doing. It happened to work in our family because my mother clearly wanted it and she couldn't have gotten to die decently any other way. It was also all right for us because my mother and I had a wonderful relationship. But as a society, we really can't be doing this. We can't have relatives and friends 
helping people to die because sometimes they don't do it right, because sometimes they feel guilty, and because sometimes they are guilty. In my opinion, we need an orderly, compassionate system for terminally ill people who want to die. We need a law that would allow physicians to do this. Of course, that law would include safeguards. There is a way to do this. If, if we use a couple of things our world seems in short supply of, common sense and mercy, you may know attempts have been made in Washington State and California to pass laws that would allow doctors to help suffering terminally ill people out of life. Both attempts failed rather narrowly. The Catholic Church in California, I know, mounted a very well-financed kind of disinformation campaign against those initiatives, suggesting that people were in danger that their physicians would be murdering them. Even so, the, as I say, the initiatives in both states failed rather narrowly, and a group called Americans for Death with Dignity, of which I'm a proud member, plans to put this on the ballot in California in 1996, and also Oregon is making similar plans for next year. I haven't yet told you about the majority of letters I've received. They're not from people who want to end their lives now. They're from people who probably will never want to end their lives. They're people who sensibly, I think, want a little insurance. They want to know that just in case they should be in desperate straits, they'd be able to get out. I have another letter that speaks to that. I need to get prepared while I am still in my right mind. Could I obtain the medication and freeze it? How can I even obtain it? I used to visit the nursing homes a lot and just hurt for the folks who were begging God to let them die. Another one, I love life, look forward to every new day and hope in some way that my demise will be peaceful, calm, and happy for me. I'm a happy person and mentally very active, but I am really worried about a catastrophic illness. I do not want to hang on indefinitely. If I was incapacitated in any way, I cannot go to Holland where euthanasia is acknowledged. What a pity, they shoot a horse if it breaks a leg and put a puppy to sleep if he is hurt bad, but a human being must suffer. My children are not close by. I have a daughter who was married into a strict Baptist family and wouldn't think of be bending any rules. I'm a universalist and flexible. <laughs> so. um, I do believe from what I've heard that most patients given the opportunity to end their lives wouldn't. But knowing that the option exists is of course merciful in itself. When my mother knew we had found a way out for her, she became peaceful and unafraid. The change in her was amazing. And people who didn't know what had happened noticed the change. She felt in control, and in a sense, that's what this is all about. People are so afraid of not being in control, and they're right to be afraid. Who of us knows who will die in his or her sleep at the age of 99, and who will be strung out into life beyond a point that we want to be? Uh, attached to some bed full of tubes, begging some indifferent or helpless health professional to release us. It's sometimes very hard to understand the opposition. Sometimes I think it's a failure of, of imagination. I think there are people who've never felt really horrible. I mean, they maybe had a stomachache once after eating too big a lunch, but they don't really know what suffering is. 
and they can't somehow empathize with people who are at the end of life and have nothing ahead but suffering. And, and then I think, what about self-interest? Don't they realize that they themselves might be in that position? Whenever the God question comes up, and I feel given this place, it's appropriate to bring that up. Um, I, I, I wonder about the logic. You know, people will say, well, we shouldn't interfere with God's plan. But of course, we do that every day. Um, and by that logic, we shouldn't have surgery because surgery is an interference. Uh, so logically, that doesn't make sense. And in a way, I, my favorite response to the God question was, was my mother, my mother's, who said, God gave me a brain, and I'm glad it's still working, that I can use it to get myself out of this. And she did that. But she took the pills in order to die at a moment that she was able to swallow. It was a moment that she felt relatively well, but she knew she had to act because that moment of being able to swallow was certainly going to pass. Another of her great lines was, oh, I get it. I can't die until I feel better. <laughs> Had physician aid in dying been legal, this is something I've thought of many times, had there been some way for her doctor to give my mother a lethal shot, she wouldn't have had to kill herself when she did. She would have waited. She would have lived longer. Thank you. We've been listening to Betty Rollin on the Westminster Town Hall Forum. The forum is being co-sponsored today by Abbott Northwestern Hospital and the Virginia Piper Cancer Institute. We're going to move into a question and answer session now. And for those of you here in the sanctuary, you have yellow cards. We'd invite you to write down your questions on those cards, pass them to the aisles, and the ushers will pick them up and bring them forward. Today's questions are going to be sorted by Dr. Liz Bennett and Val Hallgren. I would also like to encourage, if you're a member of our radio audience, to please call us with your questions. The phone number here at Westminster Church is area code 612-332-3421. And I'd like to invite you back to the podium for questions. I would like to, to begin, you have spoken, it seems, quite a lot about breast cancer. And I wonder whether you get as many invitations to speak on the subject that you're speaking to us today. One reason I'm particularly glad to be here is that I almost never get asked to speak about this, about assisted suicide. And in fact, I, I do a lot of speaking about breast cancer, and very often it's at hospitals, and very often I'm asked, please don't talk about that other stuff. <laughs> and I try to be obliging. It always comes up in questions because, of course, people are interested in this, but um, the medical profession is very, a lot of people in, in, in the medical world are very uncomfortable with this subject and really um, would just as soon not, not hear about it. But um, uh, I, as a result, I almost never get asked. I can't even remember the last time uh, I, I was actually invited to speak about this. I think it was at another Presbyterian church. So. Presbyterians are doing something right. Would you explain briefly the legal consequences you faced in making the decision you did to help your mother? Well, as you may know, assisting a suicide, uh, assisted suicide is illegal. And uh, you might wonder why, why I'm here and not in, in some uh, prison, and, and I never was, and we never did have any legal problem. And the reason for that simply was that my mother was able to take these pills herself. We were there, my husband and I, with her. I mean, I wouldn't have dreamed of not being there with her. But she did this herself, and so we were not actively involved in her death. It wasn't as if we handed her a gun. Um, so that was for that reason, since the 
help we gave was indirect, really the research that we did to find out what, what to take. Um, she, she was able to do it herself and we were not prosecuted. Although if we lived, we happened to live in New York where the district attorney is really busy. I mean, there are a lot of bad people in New York, so he really didn't, I think he was just as happy not to have to bother about us, but if we lived in a, maybe in a place where there were, where the people, where there are more good people, we would have had a, uh, or, a or an, a district attorney who was uh, political or something, we would have had uh, some uh, prosecution. Nice segue into this next question, which is, what is your opinion of Dr. Jack Kevorkian's work? Well, I get asked about Dr. Kevorkian a lot, and uh, it doesn't really matter what my opinion is, but I like to speak on behalf of people, the many people in the physician aid and dying movement who feel very conflicted about Dr. Kevorkian. Um, I think that one thing that we know about the possibility of changing a law is that it's very important that there are safeguards in place. I mean, people who are worried about abuses are right. Um, this is, if, if the law is changed, it would have to be, there would have to be many safeguards. For example, the doctor should know the patient. The patient should articulate this wish over a period of time. It should be ascertained that the patient is um, terminally ill and, and suffering and et cetera, et cetera. And Dr. Kevorkian has kind of gone off on his own, and I think he has, I think he's rescued some people to be sure, but he has not gone, um, he has not uh, um, taken steps with these, with all of these safeguards in place. And I think his actions on the one hand, as I say, he, I think he's helped, he certainly helped some people, but on the other hand, he's created a kind of backlash um, so I would say, uh, to summarize, that, that um, we all feel kind of conflicted about Dr. Kevorkian. The good, I guess the very best part uh, is that he's certainly drawn attention to the issue and he, he certainly has reminded us that there is a problem that needs to be solved. There are people who are, who are just strung out there begging to die and who need help. And um, we can't go on ignoring them. What criteria do you suggest for laws determining when this be appropriate? I'm not sure I understand that. What criteria? You mean what, safe, what kinds of safeguards? Medical condition of, of the patient, perhaps, and also uh, should there be similarities between law, state law, as opposed to federal law? Well, I mean, the ideal thing, would, in my opinion, would be a federal law, but um, I'm not a lawyer or a legal expert, but the people, again, who are in this movement are going, I think the only hope is to go state by state. Um, and the efforts being made in, in uh, California coming up and Oregon uh, are fairly similar. And as I say, they are, uh, they, they would allow a physician to give a patient a lethal shot under certain conditions, under certain very stringent conditions, which some of which I just mentioned. Please explain a bit more how the members of your family utilized humor to cope with their feelings after, both before and after your mother's death. Oh, well, I think that was a misunderstanding. Nobody, um, the role of humor in, in my life and uh, mostly was in connection with breast cancer, which is a lot, which isn't too funny either, but it's a lot funnier than suicide. <laughs> and um, I mean, my mother was was very witty, and 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 um, I, I mean, my book about her is has humor in it because she had so much humor. And um, but I can't say the family was. I mean, we were we were certainly very sad and upset about about her illness and. Um, my family didn't know how she died until I wrote the book about it uh, because I really hadn't planned that anyone would know and I didn't really think I would write this book and it all just kind of happened. Um, but, um, I mean, my mother, just as, as long as the humor question is, is, is asked, I, I, I can't help remembering on her last 
when she knew, as I say, that she was going to be able to get out of life, a, a certain calm came over her, and she was really like herself again, which was so wonderful. And um, she got very busy because she knew that she was going to be leaving life, and she wanted, my mother was a very practical sort, and she wanted to make sure, you know, the rent was paid, and the bills were done, and this was done, and, and um, she said, I remember she said to me, now there's a package in the closet that, it's from Bloomingdale's, and it's this, this thing I bought you that you never, that you don't want, now don't forget to return it, you know. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it was so, it was one of those things you can't make up, you know, that, and, and this was less than 48 hours before she, uh, before she died. Emotionally, did you know you could handle the decision you were making? Mm -hmm. Well, that's an interesting question. You all can hear these questions, I assume, yes. Um, I wasn't really thinking about myself, to tell you the truth. I was thinking, I mean, my mother wanted this, death, and there was no way I wasn't going to help her, and I wasn't really thinking about how I would feel about it or how I did feel about it. I just knew that we had to do this, and it seemed right to me. I mean, it just seemed, I never had, I can't say that I never had a moment's hesitation. Of course I had a moment's hesitation. But the hesitation. You know, kind of situation. And uh, I, I just didn't think about it. What would you say to people who were once very ill and willing to end their lives but couldn't and now are still alive and glad of it? Isn't recovery unpredictable? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good question, too. Isn't recovery un unpredictable? Um, some recovery is unpredictable, and some recovery is not unpredictable. I mean, if you have a situation, that's why the safeguards question is so important about this law. If you have a situation, if a person has a certain kind of tumor, I mean, my mother had this tumor, and I don't want to get too graphic here, but it was a, it was a major size tumor, it was inoperable, it was growing, and there was no way it was going to just vanish. Um, I mean, it was out of the question, unless you get into that miracle sphere, which I don't think adults should get into. I mean, there's a certain kind of, you know, there are amazing turns in, in a disease like cancer, and you will have people who will, who are very sick and then suddenly they're okay for a time. And, but when certain kinds of, there is a th such a thing as terminally ill. There is such a thing as patients who are definitely dying. And maybe it takes a little longer than a physician will think it's six months and maybe it's eight months, but it's happening. Uh, and, and um, you know, there is such a thing. How would you address the problem of an aged, aged person with Alzheimer's who cannot decide for herself to die, but who is obviously no longer living with dignity? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a terrible problem, because what I'm really talking about has to do with people who are uh, compass mentis, who are, who, whose minds are working and whose bodies are gone, and what do you do in a situation where the mind is gone, and in a way you, you're, one is helpless. I mean, legally, um, unless there's some kind of directive uh, before, when a person is perhaps in an early stage of this disease, but if there is no directive and somebody is just, I mean, there was a very sad case in Florida uh, where a man took a gun and shot his wife who had Alzheimer's and, she, and he said, well, I knew she wouldn't want to live this way, but that's a, that's a difficulty for the law because in truth you can't have people saying, well, I knew she would have wanted this and, um, you know, that just doesn't quite work. So I think Alzheimer's uh, presents a, a different kind of problem. How or did you respond to the letter from the person asking for advice on how to end her life? Mm -hmm. Well, I can't um, 
give, I can't tell people how to die. I mean, can't meaning it isn't appropriate for me to do that, I feel. First of all, it's not legal, and except that's questionable. But um, again, I don't know for sure who these people are, and I would bet that, I mean, the letters I, I read, I think, are, are, are genuine letters. And one of the, the reasons I'm in this movement is that I can't help people, and that these people begging for help and advice um, are, you know, should have it. Um, there is a book, I guess, uh, that, that you may know about, um, called Final Exit that I actually wrote an introduction to, which does give some information. But um, I can't, uh, um, you know, be helping people. I mean, I don't. I, I respond to every letter I get, but I don't. I don't give death instructions. Also, people people's bodies are different. I mean, different different weights require different amounts of medication. Some people criticize Western medicine for focusing on the illness and often ignoring the person who has it. Did you ever turn to alternative medicine? No. Um, the phrase alternative medicine always makes me nervous. Um, I think that there's a lot of hocus pocus uh, in that area. And although I think that one's emotional state is important, um, I get very nervous when people start doing funny things with tea and leaves and weird pills and imaging. And um, I mean, there's a lot of no, non-science in, in alternative me medicine that I'm not comfortable with. Do you see that there have been any changes in the medical profession's stance on euthanasia? Well, I'm not sure I'm in a position to know about this. Uh, that's a big question, whether doctors are more open to this idea. I, I don't have any way of, of counting. Um, I almost never hear from physicians, interestingly. I hear from a lot of people, and I hear from a lot of, as I say, particularly women, and I hear from a lot of nurses who would love such a, a physician-assisted suicide law because they're the ones who see the suffering more than anyone. Um, but, and there are, there are obviously some physicians who are in favor of this. Uh, uh, and you, you may know about Dr. Timothy Quill, who wrote about assisting a patient of his to die in the New England Journal of Medicine. And, um, and there are many physicians who do this uh, you know, qu uh, quietly and uh, um, without anyone knowing. But um, there are many physicians who are very uncomfortable with it. And there are many physicians who are adamantly against it. And I don't know what, I have no, I don't have a sense of the count. I do know this, that every time they, there is a poll about this issue, in general, uh, the major majority of people questioned seem to be in favor of this, which is, which is fascinating. And to me, uh, the, my interpretation of that is that this has to do, some, that, that so many people have had an experience that changes them. Sad to say. Are people facing terminal illnesses often forced into doing their own research about finding out about treatments or options, and is that good? Mm -hmm. Well, sure. I mean, if you're, if a person is at the end of life and suffering and in begging to die and all of this and can't get help, um, you know, they're they're forced to write to people like me who can't help them or or, uh, well, they can buy this book, Final Exit, which may or may not help them, or, I mean, they're left to their own, you know, and there are people who can't move and who can't speak and who can't swallow, and, uh, of course, it's not a good situation. I mean, it's, it's a horror. It's just that we don't know about these people because they're invisible. But I hear from some of them, and I've often said that anyone who gets my mail would be, would be, moved to uh, want some kind of a, a change in the law. 
do you think that a living will would help in a situation such as this because it, it uh, allows people to refuse treatment and have that uh, on paper? Well, a living will, of course, is a, is a very good idea. Um, and a living will um, may or may not, depending on the state, and protect you from um, uh, interference, medical interference. But a living will doesn't solve the problem I'm talking about. The problem I'm talking about has to do with people who are um, not having treatment, but who, who just don't die and who want to die. You know, some, some people um, will, be, will, will die swiftly, and some people will, will get so sick, and you think, how can that person still be alive? But, the, but they are alive. And um, this is one of the horrible uh, unknowns. Next question. Are there other civilized countries that have adopted the kind of laws you advocate? Well, in Holland, uh, this assisted suicide, it isn't exactly legal, but they, they kind of allow it. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't explain to you exactly what I mean by that. But um, doctors, physicians do help patients to die in Holland, and they are not prosecuted for it. Um, but uh, there are safeguards in place, and it doesn't, and it doesn't happen a lot. And as I say, I think one reason it doesn't happen a lot is that for the most part, this is a kind of more of an insurance than I think something that people would actually do. I think very few people really would do this, but for the, for the people who, who would do it, it's important. And for all of the rest of us who, who have reason to be afraid, it's important as well. Would you have concerns about the type of laws that are, that are currently in place in Holland being implemented in this country? Well, I think it would be um, a very good, good thing if we had a system here that they have in Holland, although I haven't been very clear about what that is. I mean, I think, it's, I think we need something. We need something in place. And what exactly it should be, um, uh, I'm not... Uh, prepared to say, but I think, as I say, the people who are uh, behind the initiatives in California and Oregon have a have a clear idea of uh, of what the, what this law should be exactly. Do you think that medical ethicists will eventually catch up with the reality of the issues you're talking about? Well, I think many medical ethicists have caught up with this issue. Um, I mean, there are many thinking people I'm, who, are, who are in favor of this, uh, and, and some are, are not. And whether, I think, I, th I, I guess I do think more and more people will, will um, be open to this, because I think, you know, one of the ironies of, of our advanced medical technology is that it keeps people alive uh, so fantastically, but sometimes um, inappropriately, and uh, we'll con continue to see more of that. What would you say to people who think what you did for your mother was a good thing, but say they couldn't do it themselves? Well, I totally understand that, and as I said, I don't think family members should be doing this. It's, it's kind of dangerous. I mean, it's dangerous in that you might muck it up and, and the person doesn't take the right dose or can't or you don't know how to handle it and, and they wind up sicker than before, which is really, as I say, a horror. And also emotionally, it's, it's dangerous. Um, I think, you know, there's the possibility of you, you help the person and then you've, you, maybe you feel terrible about it. Um, I think it's, that's, again, that's why we need physicians to do this. This next questioner writes, I have terminal cancer and anticipate sometime in the future a lot of pain. What can I do now locally and nationally to affect change? Is there anything I can do with my physician and or attorney for when the law changes? Well, if you wish to get behind this fight to 
change the law, you can get in touch with the people in California um, uh, called, what are they called? Ha. I said it before, but I can't remember. Um, the, they're called Americans for Dignified Death. Yeah, I, I'm, they changed their name about four times, so even though I'm a member of it, I can't remember what they're called. Um, and as far as on the home front, I think what, you know, it's, it's good to have a conversation with your, a frank conversation with your doctor and see if, see where your, where your doctor is on this issue and whether your doctor is the sort who might help you out, whether it's legal or not. And, um, you know, beyond that, there is this book, Final Exit, which, which, uh, which tells you um, in, a, in, a, in a better way than, than I think anything else I know about what, what, a, what a lethal dose of uh, medication is. But then it's a problem of how to get it. So there are no easy answers. Despite the books that have been read, what would you have to say about each person's uniqueness in terms of the experience they face? I'm not sure I understand that. Either in assisting or dealing with such a decision, perhaps? Well, of course, each person is unique, and each situation is unique, in a sense. Um, and I think that some people, there are people who are suffering horribly and at the end, and who want to live out every last second. And I believe, by the way, that that is their right and that we should support those people. And I'm a major fan of hospice. And I'm a major fan of good pain medication. And I think we, I think this is all about what people want. And if people want to live and to be as pain-free as possible, we should do better with them. And I think the people who say, if we did better than them, with them, then fewer of those people would want to die, have a point. But they're not right about everyone. Um, because there are people who, even though they can be kept relatively pain-free, still feel that the quality of their life is so, is so diminished that they want out of life just the same. Since doctors deal with suffering every day, do you find most doctors approve of assisted suicide? Well, that's kind of a question that came up before. I, I really don't know about most. I don't know about numbers. I just can't answer that. How did you learn to laugh at cancer? <laughs> well, um, I had breast cancer, and I had it twice, actually, and I'm... Um, when you have something very scary, and, and you, which occasionally kills people, more than occasionally kills people, and, and you wind up alive, it really cheers you up. And uh, you find yourself making tasteless jokes about, you know, the breasts that you lost and how, you know, they're nice, but after all, you don't walk on them or <laughs> hail taxis with them, blah de blah and, and uh, ho, 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 and, and uh, that sort of thing. And I guess I do feel um, uh, extremely lucky. And um, there are a lot of us, actually, uh, women who've had this disease who are, who are alive and who will remain alive for quite a long time. And we're uh, mostly a, a pretty cheerful group. Do you think that there are enough support systems built either for people who are dealing with terminal diseases or for their family members that were not around, for instance, um, a decade or more ago? Well, there's a lot more supports, certainly of every sort, for people who are in, who are in every sort of trouble. And, of course, that's a good thing. Um, so, yes, I think that's, that's, a, that's a kind of uniquely American thing. I think, and it's something that we uh, should be proud of, that we have all of these, um, you know, support systems, and I mean, there's a group for practically everything, and uh, I think that's a fine thing. 
Do you ever feel like you're letting people down who ask you specific questions about um, assisted suicide when your response to them must be, I, I can't no. tell you how to do this? Absolutely. I mean, when I get a letter such as the ones I've read from people asking me what should I do and I can't tell them, um, it's, it's haunting. I mean, uh, it's terrible. And again, it's one of the reasons I'm in favor of physician-assisted suicide because these people have a right, I think, to have assistance if they want it or to know, again, to know that should they get to that moment that they're desperate to get out of life and have a perfectly reasonable kind of desperation that, that there would be somebody there to, uh, to help them, somebody reliable. Does it concern you that this debate will be focused legally rather than ethically or morally? That the choices will be made in courts? Well, I don't think that's an either or. I mean, I think that it's possible to have a moral law um, and an ethical law, and I think a law such as this uh, would have both morality and, and compassion behind it. So, but you need to have a law because you need to have safeguards in place. I mean, we can't, you know, I agree, you can't just have people killing people or helping people die. It's, it's too risky. It has to be orderly. It has to be, one has to be careful. Do you, think, do you think people have come to appreciate your irreverence to a certain extent about dealing with cancer um, in a way that has helped strengthen your message over the years? Well, I'm certainly not the only person who feels lighthearted about having had cancer and having not croaked. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of people feel, um, you know, really good about this, and and uh, I, I'm I'm not alone. So, yeah, I think people respond to a kind of irreverence about it, and you know, there's something about laughing about a thing too that it, it, it's kind of a slightly an, an assault motion. I mean, it's sort of it, it's it's a way of not letting it get the best of you. To um, it's a kind of a, it's a little kick, and uh, I think it's I think it's helpful. What would you like to uh, end on? What would you like to share with us that hasn't come up? I think everything's come up, <laughs> <laughs> except what's Tom Brokaw really like? And I'm just as happy not to be asked that. Um, I mean, he's wonderful, but you know. Uh, no, I think this has been a. a, a Terrifically uh, interesting group, and I'm I'm uh, bowled over by your smart and varied questions, and I think we've really covered it. And I feel very grateful for the opportunity to uh, to discuss this at all. I think uh, uh, the church is 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 very broad-minded, to say the least, to uh, um, allow this this very controversial topic to to be aired this way, and uh, I really know that because I'm, as I say, I'm so rarely invited uh, to speak anywhere, let alone in a house of worship. So thank you very much. <laughs>